Hey guys, this is Craig from the Pacific War Channel. And before I let you listen to this podcast, I just want to acknowledge this podcast was originally on my Patreon account. Four-part series on General Kanji Ishiwara. And it became so popular, I had to ask my patrons if I could release it on Spotify and YouTube. Kind of as a sort of teaser to entice some of you to come over to the Patreon. By the way, over at my Patreon, found at www.patreon.com slash channel, you can find more than 13 ongoing exclusive Patreon podcasts. There's also early access to all of my content, privileges like voting rights on the next subjects I will tackle, live hangouts, your wonderful names in the end credits of my episodes on YouTube, and a lot more. So if you want to support my channel and the work I do at other places like Kings and Generals, then please go check it out. It means a lot to me. Hey guys, before you listen to this one, do realize this is part three of a series about General Kanji Ishiwara. So if you're not already done so, I would recommend listening to parts one and two. But after stating all of that, this episode is General Kanji Ishiwara part three, the gradual fall into the war with China. Now, I want to start right off the bat, and I just want to say I tried really, really hard to finish this one up neatly in uh, part three, and I utterly failed. I wrote pages and pages. I even deleted some, trying to squeeze it all in. But, oh. So part three will be focusing on the insane politics of the 1930s and how Ishiwara tried to prevent the war with China. It is rather ironic that the man who was the chief instigator that ushered in the conquest of Manchuria was unable to impose his will when it came to molding Manchu Kuo. Now, while Ishiwara Kanji was the operations officer given official responsibility over the planning and conduct of military operations to seize Manchuria, the arrangements for the new state, being political in nature, were not in his exact sphere of influence. Regardless, Ishiwara was extremely vocal about his opinions on how Manchu Kuo should develop, and he heavily emphasized racial harmony. He continuously hammered his colleagues that the economic development of Manchu Kuo should reflect the spirit of racial cooperation. Ishiwara assumed the economic interests of Manchu Kuo would simply coincide with that of the Kwangtung army. By definition, both ultimate goals would be the unity of Asia against the West, in his mind. He was quite wrong. Ishiwara was consumed by his theory of final war. Everything he did was to prepare for it. Thus, his obsession of racial harmony was another part of that plan. In 1932, the Self-Government Guidance Board was abolished in March, leaving its functions and regional organizations to be tossed into brand new boroughs of a new government of Manchu Kuo. An organization emerged in April called the Kiwake Concordia Association. It was brought together by Yamaguchi Jitsi and Ozawa Kaizaku. Its purpose was to promote racial harmony and it was backed by members of the Kwangtung army, notably Ishiwara, Itagaki, and Katakura. The Kwangtung army flooded money into the organization, and it grew rapidly. Well, amongst the Japanese, anyways. General Hanjo was a bit worried about how much power the organization might have in the political sphere of Manchu Kuo. He did not want to see it become an official political party. He preferred it remained in an educative role. And by educative role, I of course mean to be a propaganda arm of the Kwangtung army, so they could exert their influence over Manchu Kuo without having any real skin in the game. But to Ishiwara, the Concordia Association was the logical means to unify the new nation, guiding its political destiny 
To be blunt, Ishirada really saw it should have much more authority than his colleagues believed it should. Ishiwara complained in August of 1932 that Manchuria was a conglomerate of conflicting power centers such as the Kwangtung Army, the new Manchukuo government, the Kwangtung government, the Mansatsu, the consular office, and so on. Under so many hats, he believed Manchukuo would never become a truly unified modern state. And of course, he was one of the few people that actually wanted it to be so. He began arguing the Kwangtung army should turn over its political authority as soon as possible, so, quote, Japanese of high resolve should hasten to the great work of the Manchurian Concordia Association, for I am sure that we Japanese will be its leaders. In this way, Manchukuo will not depend on political control from Japan, but will be an independent state based on Japanese-Manchurian cooperation. Guided by Japanese, it will be made of Sino-Japanese friendship, an indicator of the present trends of world civilization. Needless to say, the Concordia Association made very little headway with the Chinese, and it began to really piss off the Japanese leadership. The association gradually was bent into a spiritualist propaganda intelligence arm of the IGA, staffed largely by elite Japanese working in the Manchukuo government. Ishiwara began using the Concordia Association to promote things such as returning leased territories like the railway zone, abolition of extraterritoriality, equalizing payment between the races working in Manchukuo, the kind of stuff that would promote racial harmony. Such advocacy, as you can imagine, deviated heavily with the Japanese military. And Ishiwara's reputation was getting pretty hurt by this. The Kwangtung army staff began shifting dramatically, seeing Ishiwara more and more isolated, aside from Itagaki and a few other followers being around. The upper brass, as they say, had had enough of the nuisance of the Concordia Association, and they gradually took control of it to make sure all this talk of concessions stopped. In August of 1932, Ishiwara received a new assignment, and it seems he was only too happy to leave Manchuria. The truth of the matter was, he was actually becoming quite depressed with the lack of any progress in what he was doing. Ishiwara returned to Japan, disgusted with the turn of direction Manchuria was going, and he believed he would be blamed for its future failures, so he submitted his resignation. But the IJA High Command knew how popular Ishiwara was, and how dangerous he could become, so they rejected his resignation. Instead, they gave him a military decoration. He was in a very strange spot now, for the youthful officers of the Kodaha faction loved Ishiwara, but the senior top brass of the IGA were extremely suspicious of him, and let's just say they were keeping him under close watch. Now, with Ishiwara back in Japan, he would get himself involved in a bit of a war between the two factions. As many of you probably already know, the Japanese military of the late 1920s and the early 1930s saw the emergence of two factions. The Kodaha, Imperial Way, and Tosai, Control Factions. The Kodaha sought what they called a Showa Restoration, to give the Emperor absolute power, like the good old days, as they say. What they truly wanted was a military dictatorship with the Emperor at the head of it. And they were willing to even form a coup, if necessary, to make this happen. Another thing they believed in heavily was Hokushinran, the Northern Strike War Plan. The idea behind this was that the USSR and communism as a whole was Japan's largest threat, 
and the IGA needed to invade the USSR. Now, the Tosai faction believed in pretty much everything the Kodaha faction believed in, but they differed on some various issues. Number one, they were not willing to perform a violent coup to usher in the Shoah restoration. No, they thought they could work with the existing Zaibatsu elites and the politicians to get things done. Now, that's an important differentiation between the two factions, as the Kodaha faction really, really hated the Zaibatsu elites and the current politicians. I mean, they were working to kill most of them. The Kodaha faction pretty much saw them as being the number one problem Japan was facing, that they were all corrupt and hindering progress. The Tosai faction believed that there was going to be a large world war coming up, and that it would require a total war strategy. They believed Japan needed to build itself up to be able to fight a nation like the USSR, but probably the United States as well. They favored Nanshinran, the Southern Strike Policy, to target the resources of Southeast Asia and in the Pacific, which was necessary to give Japan what it needed to be self-sufficient. Another thing that separated these two factions, the Kodaha faction were typically made up of younger officers. Thus, they were much more radical. Despite their differences, everyone in the Japanese military understood forceful expansion into Asia was going to eventually happen, and this meant a collision with the USSR, America, and Britain. Ishiwara's first assignment back in Japan was a temporary duty with the foreign ministry. He was a member of the Japanese legation to the League of Nations under Natsuka Yasuke. The League of Nations at this time was performing the Lenten Commission, which was investigating the Manchurian problem, i.e. Japan invading Manchuria. Upon returning to Japan in summer of 1933, Ishiwara sought a regimental command, but he found it difficult to acquire because of his troublemaker-like history. Then, General Prince Nagashikuni Narahiko, who commanded the 2nd Sendai Division, gave him command over the 4th Infantry Regiment. Ishiwara went to work, training the men under him to counter the very latest Soviet infantry tactics, and of course, he lectured them extensively about his final war theories. During this time, rumors emerged that Ishiwara supported the Nanshinran strategy. Many of his old colleagues who supported the Hokushinran strategy demanded he explain himself, and Ishiwara did. These rumors were actually false. It was not that Ishiwara favored the Nanshinran strategy. It was simply that he did not back all the aspects of the Hokushinran strategy. Ishiwara believed to challenge the USSR, first Japan needed an Asian Union which he thought would probably take about 30 years to create. But to usher in such an Asian Union, first Manchukuo needed to be hammered out properly, something Ishiwara thought Japan was failing to do so. Also, Japan's military strength was insufficient to overwhelm the multiple enemies before her. The war she would enter would be a protracted one. To win such a war, she needed resources and allies notably Manchukuo and China. To confront the USSR, Japan would need to subvert Outer Mongolia. To confront the United States or Britain, she would have to seize the Philippines, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Guam. It was going to be a global clash in his mind. Ishiwara was gravely concerned with how powerful the USSR was becoming in the early 1930s. 
In the three years since he had left Manchuria, the Soviet divisions in East Asia had jumped from 8 to 14 by the end of 1935, while Japanese divisions in Manchuria were only three. For the aircraft, the Soviets had about 950 versus 220 for Japan. On top of all of that, the Soviets had TB-5 long-range bombers capable of hitting the Japanese home islands, but the Japanese had no comparable aircraft. A large reason for the Soviet buildup was literally because Kodaha leaders were publicly threatening the Soviets, such as General Sadio Ariaki. The Kodaha faction faced a lot of challenges as to how they could hope to face off against the USSR. They figured out three main principles needed to be overcome. Number one, Japan had to prevent the USSR from being able to defeat its enemies to the west and east, one at a time. Thus, Japan should seek diplomatic aims like allying with Germany. Number two, a devastating blow was necessary to the USSR far east perhaps against the Trans-Siberian Railway and air bases in the maritime provinces. Number three, if Japan was able to demolish Soviet resistance in the Far East, Japan would need to take forward positions on the Manchurian border for a protracted war. Ishiwara tried to figure out ways to get by these principles. First, he advocated for Japanese troop strength in Manchuria and Korea to be about 80% equivalent to that of the Soviets east of Lake Bakal at the offset of any hostilities. He also urged cooperation with Germany and to preserve friendly, neutral relations with Britain and the United States. That is, until the Soviets were dealt with, of course. Ishiwata vigorously felt the Nan Shinran strategy to push into Southeast Asia and the Pacific was far too ambitious for the time being, and that all efforts should be made to consolidate Manchuria for its resources. Ishiwata tried to win over some naval support for his plans, but none would be found. When Ishiwata showed his formal plans for Asia to the War Ministry, they told him his projections in Manchuria would cost at least 1,300,000,000 yen. They also notified Ishiwara the Navy were asking for about the same amount for their programs. Now, while Ishiwara spent years trying to produce a six-year plan to build up Manchuria, other significant things were going on in Japan. The Kodaha faction, as I said, had a lot of younger officer support, and a lot of these men, well, they came from rural parts of Japan. A lot of these guys came from poor families suffering and it looked to them that Japan was a nation full of social injustice and spiritual disintegration. These young officers were becoming more and more vocal in the early 1930s about wanting a Showa restoration. They thought Japan would be better off as a military state with the emperor on top. Ishiwara empathized with a desire for a Showa restoration, and many of the young officers calling for it claimed he was one of their greatest champions. He made some fiery speeches in 1935 linking the evils of capitalism to the destitution of rural Japan. He argued farmers were bearing crushing burdens because of economic privation. In his words, If the clash between the exploiters, the landlords and capitalists, and the exploited continues much longer, the exploited will be ground to bits. The present system of free economic competition has produced a situation where there is a small number of fabulously rich and limitless number of desperately poor. The nation has indeed reached a national crisis. 
liberal capitalism must inevitably give way to a newer system. What that newer system was, however, differed from what the youthful officers saw as their Showa restoration. Ishiwara wanted the Japanese government to create plans and policy. The Kodaha hardliners wanted to form a violent coup. Kodaha officers began to push Ishiwara to champion their cause more and more. However, by late 1935, Ishiwara's name would actually begin to be connected to the Tosai faction. While Ishiwara supported much of the Kodaha ideology, he simply did not share their beliefs in the same Showa restoration. He was more akin to the Tosai faction in that regard. Now, after the Manchurian incident, the two factions kind of went to war with another to dominate the military. The Kodaha faction was early on the most powerful. But in 1934, their leader, Ariaki, resigned from the army due to his failing health, and he was replaced by General Senjuro Hayashi, who favored the Tosai. In November of 1934, a plot was discovered that involved Kodaha officers seeking to murder some top-ranking politicians. The result of this saw some Tosai faction leaders force the resignation of the Kodaha leader, General Jinzaiburu Mazaki who at that time was serving as Inspector General of Military Education. In retaliation to this, the Kodaha officer Saburu Ayazawa murdered the Tosai leader, General Tatsuzen Nagata. Now this caused a frenzy. Things really began to escalate, and many looked at Ishiwara Kanji to prove which side he favored. While in prison awaiting trial, Ayazawa asked Ishiwara to be his defense counsel to which he promised he would consider it. At the same time, other Kodaha officers began pressing Ishiwara to support their cause more openly. It is really hard to see where exactly Ishiwara was in all of this, as all of his speeches prior were purposely ambiguous. If you've read any books on Ishiwara, one of the first things you would take a note of is how contradictory he was. It was as if he just kept changing his mind but it's more so that he had a weird way of looking at the world. I mean, take for example how vigorously he pushed the invasion of Manchuria, because in his mind they were saving the Chinese. He looked like what we say in English is a fence-sitter, and after what will be called the February coup of 1936, there was testimony that indicated Ishiwara was a middle-echelon member involved in said coup. But then again, other testimony had him on the list of people that were going to be assassinated. A few weeks before Aizawa's trial, Ishiwara refused his request. On February the 26th, Ishiwara was awakened at his Tokyo home by telephone. It was a call from Colonel Suzuki Teichi, informing him a rebellion was underway. Ishiwara, though really ill at the time, rushed over to the military police HQ in Kudan. There he was informed of what was going on and how all of the officers were now taking the side of the Shoa Restorationists or to quell the rebellion. From there he rushed to meet with War Minister Kawashima Yoshiyuki, where he demanded a proclamation of martial law to cope with the rebellion. After that he urged Vice Chief of Staff Sugiyama to order units from the garrisons all around Tokyo to overwhelm the rebels. Within 24 hours of the event, Ishiwara was then named Operations Officer of the Martial Law Headquarters, and he began coordinating plans to deal with the crisis. 
Thus, Ishiwara occupied a crucial position in quelling the coup. On the night of the 27th, a bunch of officers who sympathized with the rebels came to the HQ to argue for delaying actions against them. To this, Ishiwara rose up and he announced, We shall immediately carry forward plans for an assault. All units will assemble for that purpose. The army will await until noon of the 28th, then it will begin its assault and crush the rebellion. The next day, Ishiwara went to the main entrance of the war minister's office where a large number of the rebels had occupied, and he demanded to talk to their leaders face to face. He hoped the youthful officers who looked up to him would see reason. They surprisingly let him in, just after they had shot Captain Katokura Tadashi for trying to do the very same thing. Ishiwara then told them he shared many of their goals, but condemned their use of force. With a pistol literally pointed at him, Ishiwara declared this to them. If you don't listen to reason, you will be crushed by the severest measures. He simply delivered this ultimatum and he walked out the door, like a badass. By the 28th, the tides turned on the rebels. Emperor Hirohito put his foot down, demanding an end to the mutiny. Many of the top Kota leaders simply walked away because of that. The Navy brought all of its power to Tokyo Bay, including some SNLF Marines, and all their guns were now on the rebels. Some of the rebels still held out, still hoping the Emperor would change his mind and order a Shoah restoration. But by the 29th, it all fell apart. The rebels surrendered, aided by one Colonel Tomoyuki Yamashita, one of my favorite generals, by the way, of World War II, a very fascinating character. And his story in all of this is actually a very interesting one, but I can't tell it here. In the words of Matsumura Shietsu, a member of the martial law HQ at the time, In the midst of all the confusion and commotion, Ishiwala never lost sight of his objective, and he dealt with the crisis with a cool efficiency. If ever there was a case of the right man in the right place, it was Ishiwara at this time. No doubt, what brought about the ultimate surrender of the rebel forces was, of course, the Imperial Command. But I believe that in a large part, the collapse of the rebellion was due to the decisiveness of Ishiwara, who never swerved, never hesitated. In short, Tokyo was saved by Ishiwara's courage. It is rather ironic. Many would point out it was Ishiwara who instigated the entire insurrection. But when it came time for it, he was one of the largest people to stomp down on it. One could argue, by suppressing the rebellion, Ishiwara had exploited the crisis in order to earn the political power necessary to bring about his version of a Shoah restoration. Some real Machiavellian stuff there. Now, during the mutiny, after meeting the rebels, Ishiwara actually had a secret meeting with two Koda officers at the Imperial Hotel. This meeting was held with Colonel Hashimoto Kingoro and Colonel Mitsu Sakichi. He spoke to them about the possibility of forming a new government. The three of them came to some conclusions on what was necessary to actually perform a real Shoah restoration. The rebels needed to go back to their barracks. The emperor needed to endorse the Shoah restoration and members of the cabinet and top military leaders had to support it as well. 
Ishiwara then went to the martial law HQ and he demanded Army Vice Chief of Staff Sugiyama that he submit to the Emperor a petition to quote, to establish a restoration which would make clear the spirit of the nation, realize the national defense, and stabilize the people's livelihood. Sugiyama wanted nothing to do with this, and he told him, It's simply impossible to relay such a request from the army. Ishiwara knew Sugiyama's position was too strong to challenge directly, so he backed off. This was his last attempt to alter the national course through confrontation. Because of his actions during the quelling of the rebellion, this little scene was quickly forgotten. His reputation was not tarnished. Well, it was amongst the Kodaha hardliners, who saw him as a traitor, but other than that. Yet again, he seems to be a man of many contradictions. After the February coup, the Kodaha faction ceased to exist, and the Tosahai's ideology grabbed most of the military, though they also faded heavily. Ishiwara went back to planning and lecturing, taking a heavy notice of how Germany and Italy's totalitarian models were looking like the most efficient ones that Japan should emulate. He pushed heavily for a national defensive state. He kept advocating for a five-year plan that would push Japan into a total war economy, but the industrialists and the economists kept telling him it was far too much. I honestly, I could write pages on all the ideas that he had. He covered almost every aspect of Japanese society with them. He wanted the whole of Japan to devote itself into becoming the hegemonic power in Asia, but this required self-sufficiency more territory, alliances, an overhaul of Japanese politics, an overhaul of its economy, etc., etc. He worked on this for many years. One thing I find amusing to note, Ishiwara's plans had the national defense state not run directly by the military. No, instead, the military would only focus on military affairs to maximize their efficiency. Thus, civilians would lead the government, and in his words... The tactics and strategy of a national defense in the narrow sense are unquestionably the responsibility of the military. But national defense in the widest sense, industry, economy, transportation, communications are clearly related to the fields of politic. Of course, the military can naturally express their opinion on these matters in order to counsel some minister whose duties are political, but to go before the general public and discuss the detailed industrial and economic is an irrigation of authority. So yes, Ishiwara actually sought to remove military officers from political positions. And that is actually hilarious if you understand the Japanese society at this time. In 1937, Ishiwara was promoted to the rank of Major General, and his duties were of the Operations Division of the General Staff. Because of his popularity and now his rank, some began to see him almost like that of a rising dictator. In January of 1937, the government of Hirota Koki had come to power largely because of the February coup, and they were starting to have problems. Politicians were unable to deal with the rising military budgets. Ishiwara was eager to press forward his national defense state idea, and alongside this, Captain Fukutome Shiguro, the naval counterpart to him, was angry at the cabinet for hindering funding and calling for their dissolution. In one meeting, Ishiwara blurted out, 
If there is any disturbance, the military should proclaim martial law throughout the country until things were straightened out. Well, within days, the cabinet fell on its own, and now everyone looked to a successor. The army and navy fought for their candidates. The navy favored Ugaki Kazushige, but the army held grudges against him. Ishiwara also did not like his appointment, stating he had a bad political past. By bad, that meant that he had advocated for military budget decreases. Ugaki refused the job because of all the pressure, and he made a note about Ishiwara's remarks towards him. Seeing Ugaki pushed aside, Ishiwara and his followers pushed for three other candidates. Hayashi Senjuro, House President Kanoi Fumamaro, and President of the Privy Council, Hiranuma Kichiro. Ishiwara sent to each man his five-year plan to test their enthusiasm for it. Hiranuma didn't like it. Kanoi was quite neutral on it, and Hayashi liked it. So Ishiwara backed Hayashi. Go figure. All of Ishiwara's Manchurian-oriented followers pushed the man into office. When Hayashi was given imperial command to head a new government, Ishiwara met with his Manchurian faction friends to draw a list of people they wanted to see in the cabinet. At the very top of the list was Itagaki Seishiro, obviously, who was chosen as the new war minister. Admiral Setsugu Nobumasa, known to have radical reformist leanings for naval minister. Matsuoka Yosuke, or Shiratori Toshio for foreign minister. Industrialist Akeda Shien for finance. Suzada Shingo for commerce and industry, Sogo Shinji as chief cabinet secretary, and Miyazaki as chairman. Ishiwara himself stayed carefully in the background to make it seem like he was only attending military duties. Again, very Machiavellian. However, rivals to Ishiwara began working against him, especially some of those Kodaha hardliners who felt betrayed by him because of the February coup incident. They pressed Hayashi to not accept many of Ishiwara's cabinet candidates, such as Itagaki, and Hayashi backed off the majority of them as a result. The effort to form a Manchurian cabal failed, and this further led to a lack of enthusiasm for Ishiwara's national defense plans. Hayashi's government, which Ishiwara had placed his hopes upon, became antagonistic towards him and his followers in the end. Now, over in Manchuria, the Kwangtung army was looking to seize territory in northern China and inner Mongolia. This was something Ishiwara was flip-floppy about. Again, he is a man of many contradictions. At first, he began speaking about the necessity to simply develop Manchukuo so that China and inner Mongolia would follow suit. But gradually, he began to warm up to certain schemes that would involve an invasion. Though when he heard his former Kwangtung colleagues were basically going to perform the exact same plan he had done with the Mukden incident, well, he traveled back to Manchuria to dissuade them. Ishiwara landed at Dairen, and within days of his arrival, he learned that 15,000 troops under Prince Domchungtongrup, who is also known as Prince De of Mongolia, and by all means, we are going to refer to him from this point on as Prince De, he was being backed by Kwangtung arms and aircraft. They were going to launch a full-scale invasion of the Suyan province. Ishiwara was furious, and he screamed at the general staff upon discovering this. The next time I visit the Kwangtung army, I'm going to piss on the floor of the commander's office. 
Within a month, the warlord Yan Xishan, now fighting for the NRA, turned back Prince Te's forces. This greatly angered the Guangtung army, fueling what Ishuala always feared, a war between China and Japan. Ishiwara began lecturing left, right, and center about how Japan needed to curb her imperialistic aggression against China. He advocated, as always, racial harmonization about the so-called East Asia League. That, by the way, is the name that he gave for this kind of theoretical cooperation amongst all the Asians. And of course, that meant cooperation between China and Japan at the forefront. He thought perhaps China could be induced by joining a federation with Japan, and to do this, Japan should help develop Manchukuo as a positive model. Ishiwara warned any aggressive actions against China would waste valuable resources needed dearly to be directed against the USSR. In his words, China was an endless bog that would swallow men and materials without prospect of victory, and it would cripple the possibility of an East Asian Union. Probably the most prophetic words he ever said. Now, Ishiwara was still influential, and many in Hayashi's cabinet heeded him, trying to push for more diplomacy with China. But by the spring of 1937, Tokyo HQ had split over the issue. On one side were Ishiwara and those seeking to obtain a sort of treaty with China to form an alliance against the USSR. On the other hand, the nationalists and communists were on the verge of forming a united front, allied to the USSR. Thus, the faction seeking to invade China was gaining a hell of a lot of esteem because of that. This faction simply sought to get China out of the way. Then they could focus on the USSR. And as much as Ishiwada fought it, the China War would come nonetheless. In June of 1937, a report from a Japanese civilian visiting China reached Colonel Kawabi Torashiro. The report stated that the China Garrison Army in the Peking area were planning on an incident similar to what had occurred in Mokden in 1931. Kawabi took the report to Ishiwara, who said he would investigate the matter more thoroughly. Ishiwara pressed the war ministry to send Colonel Okamoto Kiyotomi to the military administration section to northern China to warn Generals Hashimoto-gun of the China Garrison Army and Kawabi Masekazu, commander of the brigade station in the Peking area, that Tokyo would not tolerate provocative actions. Okamoto came back, and he stated they reassured him it was just rumors and that nothing was occurring. Of course. Two weeks later, on July the 7th, the infamous Marco Polo Bridge incident began World War II. When it began, Tokyo took it as a minor incident, just some skirmishes between minor forces. But the fighting grew and grew. The two factions in Tokyo, who we can call the expansionists and non-expansionists, began arguing on how to proceed. The expansionists argued this was the time to deliver a quick and decisive blow, which meant mobilizing dispatching divisions into northern China to overwhelm them. The non-expansionists argued they needed to terminate hostilities immediately and seek diplomacy before the conflict got out of hand. From the offset of the conflict, Ishiwara led the doomed non-expansionists. Ishiwara tried to localize the conflict to prevent more Japanese from getting involved. To do this, he urged Prince Kenin to send a cable on July the 8th to the local Japanese forces to settle the issue locally. 
but they reported back that the Nanjing government was tossing four divisions of reinforcements to the area, prompting the Japanese to mobilize three divisions in response. For three days, Ishiwara tried to halt the reinforcements, but the Nanjing report came true. The Chinese reinforcements arrived to the scene, pushing the Japanese to do the very same. General Kawabe Masikazu argued 12,000 Japanese civilians were in the area and now they were under threat. Thus, Ishiwara had to stand down. The conflict that had begun at the Marco Polo Bridge quickly got out of hand. Ishiwara was very indecisive. He tried to thwart the spread of the conflict, but he was continuously forced to stand down when reports came in false or true about what the Chinese were doing in response. In fact, Ishiwara's efforts were getting him in a ton of trouble as his colleagues began to point out that he was actually hindering military operations, which at the time were trying to end the conflict quickly. Ishiwara did not go down without a fight, tossing one last attempt to stop the conflict. He urged Prime Minister Kanoi to fly to Nanjing to speak directly with Chiang Kai shek. It was a last ditch effort before the Japanese reinforcements arrived. When Kanoi received requests to do this from multiple Japanese military leaders, obviously all urged on by Ishiwara, he was initially favorable to the idea, and he had a plane prepared for the trip. But within hours, the idea leaked to more leaders in the military, and then it raised a storm of protests from the expansionists. Sugiyama then told Kanoi it was Ishiwara pushing the idea, and that his views represented just a small minority of the military. Kanoi ultimately backed down and he didn't do it. Ishiwara was outraged when he found out screaming, Tell the Prime Minister that in 2,000 years of our history, no man will have done more to destroy Japan than he has by his indecisiveness in this crisis. Ishiwara began fighting with his colleagues as the situation worsened. He tabled a motion to press Nanjing to support Manchu Kuo in order for the Japanese to withdraw but his colleagues blocked it. By August, the conflict had spread as far as Shanghai, and now even the ITN were getting involved. To this, Ishiwara argued they should just evacuate Japanese civilians in Shanghai and pay them off with several hundred million yen in compensation as it would be cheaper than a war. He was quickly overruled. Thus, the North China Incident, as it was becoming known, simply became the China Incident. In early September, Ishiwara tried one last attempt to negotiate a settlement, trying to get Germany to mediate. But by mid-September, Ishiwara's influence had dropped considerably. By late September, Ishiwara was removed from the general staff by General Tada. The remnants of Ishiwara's followers in the Central Army were defeated, particularly when Kanoi declared in January of 1938 that Japan would not treat with Chiang Kai-shek. Ironically, Kanoi would quickly come around to believe Japan had made a grave mistake. By 1938, 24 IJ divisions were tossed into China. The next year, this would become 34. All right, hey guys, I just want to thank you all for listening to what has been part three. I assure you there will be a part four, and by God, I will make sure it is the last one, because this just keeps going on too long. So, stating all of that, until next time,